There is a trope in science fiction, and it's kind of become a trope in everything now because pretty much all genres are connected now, but especially anything that might fall under the umbrella of weird tales like sci-fi, horror, dark fantasy, etc. In my mind, I've always called this trope, what is a human or who gets to be human? It comes from sci-fi because it's largely rooted in ideas surrounding aliens, robots, and artificial intelligence. In the relatively early days of sci-fi, like the 60s and 70s, this trope was really, really popular because authors were very interested in two things. Number one was exploring the possibilities that I mentioned earlier, like alien life forms and AI but also because they were largely trying to spread a humanist message. Despite the various political, personal, and moral failings of those early sci-fi authors, they largely seemed to have their heart in the right place. They wanted to spread this message that all life deserved a chance to live, and that if we were to approach these kind of cosmic problems with empathy and, dare I even say, love, that we could possibly work towards a peaceful and sustainable solution. It's hard not to see this optimism as a relic of the past, and over time it did seem to get watered down, diluted, and mixed with other things in order to arrive at modern sci-fi. I think a big change in modern science fiction was the introduction of Star Wars. And this is mostly because Star Wars managed to take some of those same narrative ideas, but recast it as a kind of serial adventure story, mostly inspired by older World War II serial adventure stories. There was kind of this hokey style and tone. It was explicitly a war story, you know, hence the title. And so the way that these messages were considered and presented were quite different. The big theme or trope that Star Wars introduced that many other creators would run with was the idea of a sort of David and Goliath scenario involving the rebels and an empire. And I know those are actually explicitly terms from Star Wars, but you can see how they could apply to a lot of other works. A lot of other works of science fiction or dark fantasy or whatever use a small, precocious group of rebels squaring off against a huge impossible empire as like the kind of framework of their story. As the genre moved towards its modern incarnation, this trope only became more popular, bolstered by a couple of genre classics like Ender's Game and Starship Troopers, as well as the emergence of the popularity of dystopian sci-fi. In dystopian sci-fi settings, the idea of a rebel group facing off against an impossible empire was very, very popular. There's no quicker way to establish the reader's rapport with a protagonist than to cast them as a sort of plucky underdog fighting against injustice. If you mix in a little bit of that Arthur C. Clarke-style philosophical posturing, you get something that well, a lot of people are going to become very, very attached to. It works, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't like this style or this genre convention, but it absolutely works. And the thing about it is that it appealed massively 
to a lot of writers working in a lot of media, but especially in video games. Games writers took to this narrative framing like flies to honey. They love to write stories about plucky rebels going up against huge, impossible empires. And they also love to pull from the works that inspired them, resulting in some kind of weird stories that were mishmashes of very deep, introspective, philosophical thinking and hacky sub-Star Wars schlock. Now, the weird and uncomfortable thing about this is going back to that original trope I mentioned, what is a human? The whole point of this trope was to kind of interrogate prejudice. It was to interrogate the way that people will treat other life forms that, by all accounts, appear to be equal in ways that are unequal. It's a good allegory for how cruel and fucked up humanity can be. It's a good allegory for racism or bigotry. And these were serious themes and problems that writers were thinking heavily about, especially in the 60s and 70s, right? Tons of social movements happening during that time. You know, you have like the civil rights movement, you have the summer of love, you have, you know, pushes for gay rights beginning. All these things are happening, and so, you know, once again, if you took the temperature of a lot of the, you know, community of sci-fi writers, there's a lot of people who are considering these things and are landing on these kind of progressive humanist messages and trying to find a way to, like, incorporate them into stories. One of my favorite examples of this is Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. I've mentioned this book many, many times on this show because it's one of my favorite novels of all time and I think it's a masterpiece. Now, Childhood's End is just a great novel in general, but what I personally love about it is that on the one hand, it could be read as kind of a futurist, maybe even optimistic piece of sci-fi writing that imagines one possible future for humanity. And on the other hand, it's like a deeply, deeply nihilistic castigation of the entire human race as bigoted morons who are going to die in their own filth unless something like an alien or a god intervenes to help them out. I mean, this is high-level shit. This is the type of work that it takes a genre years and years and years, if not decades, to reach. This is the kind of thing that I don't necessarily expect to see in video games, and yet I would also hope that if video games were going to tackle some of these same topics or themes, that they would take some inspiration from something like Childhood's End as often as they would from something like Star Wars. Now, that's the thing. That didn't happen. And in fact, when I was uh, a young lad, it seemed like most video games were taking a lot of influence from Star Wars. And that is video games that were trying to do something that was a little more serious, a little more adult-oriented, to tell a kind of gripping tale that had some roots in politics or political struggle, and maybe even drew some parallels with the real world. To me, this just created like really, really heavy cognitive dissonance. So let's, let's go back in time. Put yourself in my shoes. Imagine you're let's say about like 13 or 14, you are into video games, you know, you're into sci-fi, anime, 
all that good stuff. But you're also from a part of the world where there's constant political struggle. You know, one of your parents is a refugee from war. You're part of a group of people that America has decided are horrible and they all need to die. And you have thoughts and opinions about all this stuff. The net result of that, well, there's going to be a lot of net results, but in terms of media consumption, it means that when you look at these kind of sci-fi stories that are set during political struggles, where a little guy fights against an impossible empire, and where there are questions about who or what is considered to be human and treated equally, you're going to read into it, and you're going to have opinions about it, even if the creators never, ever intended for you to have these views or opinions about their work. But the thing is that these creators were pulling from works that were referencing real-life events. They were referencing real civil rights movements, and they were referencing, you know, actual fights for equality that people were having around the world. So as someone who was actually involved in one of those fights, I started to read it that way. And I say that to tell you something that is deeply absurd. And I think it's actually very, very funny and very, very dark. So yes, you can laugh at this. But when I was a kid, whenever I saw something like Star Wars or played something like Beyond Good and Evil or Sukaden 3 or whatever, I was convinced that it was about Palestine. Okay, so we're not quite ready to talk about that yet. Let's talk about this. I'm Lebanese. My family's from Lebanon. Now, that country shares a border with Israel, and Israel has attacked our country many, many times officially and has more or less been mounting a constant assault on Lebanon, I don't know, since the 80s, at least. This is the thing, when we talk about Israel and Palestine, it's very, very frustrating as an Arab and as someone from the region because this has been going on, you know, for someone my age and even people significantly older than me, but for someone my age, you know, I'm 36, this has been going on my entire life. This has been an atrocity and a genocide my entire life. And it's also been generally ignored by the West for my entire life. Now, what's going on in Palestine is truly, truly fucking awful. And it has been, once again, my entire life. And I've been trying to talk to Americans about it since I was a kid. I mean, a really young kid. I've said before on this show that I was politicized at a very young age, and this is the reason why. Despite all the fucked up shit that I've been through in my life and the way that my parents like did or didn't raise me, which was also terrible, this actually wasn't their fault. I mean, this is something that happened to me because I'm from this part of the world and I'm Muslim and 9-11 happened and Americans decided that we're all a bunch of dogs. And so we had to respond in some way. Now, one thing that my parents did try to teach me when I was a kid that I think is bullshit and I still resent them for a bit to this day is that 
we should kind of be educators about these topics or we should share our knowledge and our experience, you know, with people. Specifically, I'm thinking of white people, so I'm just going to say it. Although there are all sorts of Americans of all sorts of races who don't know jack shit about this conflict, but I'm just going to say white people. It's Think of it more of a turn of phrase if that bothers you for some reason. Um, but also, shut the fuck up if that bothers you, you goddamn snowflake. Anyway, the point is that they taught me that I should be some sort of educator and I should share my knowledge and experience with white people and that I should try and present myself in a way that would help my situation and that ultimately this is going to result in a good effect, like a net good on whatever situation I was in. Maybe people would have more respect for me. Maybe people would look at me as a person of value. Maybe they would learn something about my culture or, you know, the place in the world that my family's from or blah, blah, blah. There's even things that are written explicitly into our religion that tell us that you should be doing this, that you should be doing outreach and teaching people and blah, blah, blah. But by the time I was a teenager and starting to really have my own distinct political thoughts and opinions that were wholly my own and not influenced by you know, my religion or my culture or my parents, or whatever, I started to realize that I absolutely fucking hated that. I hated having to explain myself constantly. I hated having to explain to people my culture and my religion. I hated having to be a fucking educator just because I got dealt a certain hand. And that's the thing. I love being Arab. I love being Muslim. I have no, like, I'm not like, I wish I wasn't or something, but it's like, why does me being that based on chance mean that I suddenly have to be this like wise educator for white people. And so I decided that I just wasn't going to do it. And that means that when this topic comes up, when the Palestinian genocide comes up, I personally feel very conflicted. Because on the one hand, I would like to just have private conversations with people that are close to me that I know at least understand my position and who I am and can have a good conversation with me about it, even if we don't agree 100%. And that's the truth, is that there are people close to me where we don't agree 100%. We don't exactly see eye to eye, but we respect each other, we understand each other's position, and we can have a good conversation about it. I would prefer to do that than to try and like jump online where I have to be this like wise educator and teach people and then also incur a bunch of like hate speech and bullshit because they're bigoted pieces of shit. And that's the thing is that's something I actually have experienced. When I first started out in journalism, I was very keen to write op-eds about Israel and about, you know, being Muslim in America and all this kind of stuff. And I literally got hate mail and death threats like before this stuff was even normalized. And this is long enough ago that I was getting voicemails and letters in addition to emails. Now it all happens in your DMs, which I guess is a nice piece of technological streamlining that, that we all enjoy. Anyway, this is all to say that this episode is incredibly difficult for me to make. It's why it's late. It's why it's taken me forever. I mean, I started writing this when all this shit popped off back in October, and now it's almost January 2024. This is really hard for me to do. It's hard because I want to choose my words right and I want to be accurate, but I also want to be true to myself and I also don't want to just be like an educator for white people. I want to speak to my own experience and I want to speak to my own truth. Uh, 
without having to be overly stuffy and formal or censor myself or pretend that I'm a professor when I'm not. I'm a fucking idiot. I've said this over and over and over. I'm a musician. I'm an audio engineer. In the context of this podcast, I'm an entertainer. If you're listening, you listen to this for entertainment. But at the same time, and I guess this is maybe me revealing the point of this whole episode quite early, entertainment can have a point. Entertainment can make a cogent and important point to you that changes the way you think or changes your own life or has some positive or impactful effect on you. And I truly believe that. And yet, when it comes to this issue, when it comes to the Palestinian genocide, it feels like we can't make any movement. We can't make any progress. And it doesn't matter what anyone does, nothing changes. And it's the most frustrating, depressing, and nihilistic thing that I've come up against in my own life. And it's something that I've dealt with my entire life. And so for this episode, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about my position on it. I wanted to talk about how it's been reflected or maybe refracted is a more accurate term through some of the media that I've consumed in my life and the way that this message just gets chewed up and misconstrued by audiences. In this specific context, it's gamers and enjoyers of video games, but it's also something that really could be widely applied to anything, films, TV shows, whatever. But I do think that it's interesting that there is such a large amount of games, you know, in this space that could sort of be read in this way and that do specifically engage with these tropes and yet ultimately don't really have anything to say and or are so wildly misconstrued by the audience that they don't end up making an impact. And that's the thing is that I don't think any of the games or stories or books or whatever that I'm talking about today would be like this key that unlocks people's empathy and lets them see a genocide as a genocide or lets them see that I'm right about this or whatever. I don't see it that way. I just feel like these tropes that exist, you know, that come from sci-fi, it feels to me like over time, if they had had an impact, they would have made people a little more empathetic and a little bit more willing to think about political situations or real world or real life situations in a different light, and yet it truly feels like they haven't. And it feels like it doesn't matter how much media analysis we apply to it or how many video essays people make about it, it's just simply not going to change. And that fucking sucks. But at the same time, it also provides a decent analysis, you know, framework or lens through which to view this conflict and to show how difficult it is to make an impact or change people's minds. In my view, the core tragedy of the entire region of the Middle East is basically a place that's been ravaged by imperialism and colonialism. The way that America and before them other Western powers have treated the Middle East is as a place that they can just go and upend and resource gather whenever they feel like it. There have been so many 
governments in the Middle East that have been completely dismantled, destroyed, and destabilized by Western powers, once again, mostly America, simply in order to go in and mine whatever resources that country has to offer. The most famous is obviously oil, but there are many others in the region that have started wars. And it's really important to remember this framework whenever you're looking at any political struggle in the Middle East, because this is ultimately the root cause of it. And when it comes to Israel, Israel has basically been the longest running American-backed project in this style in the region. I mean, there's like a clip of Joe Biden going around from, I don't know, the 80s or 90s, where he just says the quiet part out loud. He says something to the effect of, if Israel hadn't been created, America would have needed to create something like it in order to accomplish their quote-unquote foreign policy goals in the region. And the truth is that Israel was kind of only the beginning of a very long-running project to completely destabilize the Middle East. Now, once again, there have been many governments in the region, like Iraq and Afghanistan, that have been forcefully destabilized by America so they can, once again, go in and resource gather. But I think, in my opinion, the best example of how America does this kind of shit is Iran. Iran is basically a cautionary tale against Western meddling in the Middle East, and yet it's rarely, if ever, viewed by that as Westerners or Americans. The cliff notes of the situation is this. In the 50s, Iran democratically elected a leader who wanted to move the country towards socialism, and one of his big platforms and promises to his constituency was that he was going to audit the oil fields and move them towards making more money for the country. He wasn't even necessarily planning to nationalize them, which was the big fear, but he did feel that the company that was extracting resources from his country, which was BP, or more accurately, the company that would eventually become BP, aka British Petroleum, needed to pay more to the Iranian government and its people if they were going to squat on their land and extract their very, very valuable resources. The response to this was a Western project to remove him as the president of the country and reinstate the Shah of Iran, who is essentially a monarch. The Shah then ruled for another 25-ish years before the Cultural Revolution that brings us the modern-day hardline Muslim Iranian government happened. And the hilarious thing about this is if you poke around online, you can still find people. Like, I found on Wikipedia when I was just, like, fact-checking this. This is all shit I learned a long time ago. I was like, let me fact-check myself, make sure the timelines are correct and stuff. On Wikipedia, if you look at the entry for the Cultural Revolution in Iran, it says it's really weird because there's like no preceding events. They didn't lose a war. People were experiencing prosperity. Nobody knew what was going on. However, more or less, the UK and America had collaborated to completely overthrow the Iranian government to go against the stated will of the people as decided in a fair and democratic election in order to install a monarch who then had these really bizarre 
hardline pro-Western policies and tried to force this kind of like modernization that would make Iran more like the UK or America. And then people justifiably had a really negative reaction to it, and it led to a reactionary Muslim government. This government would then be positioned as a major enemy to the West and a boogeyman that would support the U.S.'s foreign policy goals for the next many, many decades. Now, when we look at how that played out, we can see echoes of this in so many other countries, governments, and situations. Like, Saddam was America's guy until he wasn't, and he became the ultimate boogeyman who would pay the price for 9-11. Osama bin Laden is like exactly the same. It's the exact same scenario. This was a guy who was essentially a Cold War mercenary. He did some work for America. He did some work for Russia. He was our guy until he wasn't. Now, a lot of people like to think about 9-11 as this defining point in changing American foreign policy or attitudes towards the Middle East. And in terms of perception and the actual American people, that is true. But in terms of the American government, it didn't really change anything. It maybe slightly changed the course of this whole project, but nothing really changed. America's playbook has always been to go into the Middle East massively destabilize the government, and then use that as an opportunity to extract resources. An important part of this playbook is, once you're actually in conflict with a country or a region, is to label all of the opposition as terrorists. Now, once again, this isn't something that 9-11 invented or directly led to, but it did reinforce it as like a useful framework with which to sell people on a war or a conflict. Memories of 9-11 will always make Americans support a war against terrorists. So the most efficient way to wield that weapon then is to just label all of your enemies as terrorists. When it comes to Israel, Palestine, and the entire region where my family's from, this has been an incredibly powerful tool. Like, let's break it down for a second. Israel is a fascist apartheid state. They have all the hallmarks of it, including a quote-unquote underclass, in this case being the Palestinians, the people who, who originally lived in this country and for the last many decades have been subject to incredible, incredible cruelty. There's the obvious things like people being tortured and killed, random raids on villages, just generally being kept in a state of terror. But there's also stuff that a lot of Westerners don't know about, like incredibly heavy restrictions on where they can travel, huge, huge reliance on very, very abusive ID policies, meaning that people's lives are, well, they can barely be described as lives at all. In the last couple decades, the area in which they can live has shrunk so much that people have accurately described the Gaza Strip as an open-air prison, although now it's simply a mass grave. And Israel's more or less gotten away with it for a few different reasons. Number one, they're incredibly heavily funded and backed by America. America pumps billions of dollars every year into Israel. Everything about them, from their military to their economy, is propped up by America and American taxpayer dollars, which is why there's now such an outcry from people finding out about this who didn't know about it previously. But it's also propped up by a massive propaganda machine that's not only funded by America, but more or less directed by American history. 
Israel for a long time has been basically using the kind of 9-11 playbook to justify its genocide against the Palestinians, the root of which is, once again, labeling your enemies as terrorists and also pretending that terrorism happens in a vacuum. The whole time that I've been politically aware, this has basically been my main frustration with Americans when talking about these political issues. It's so hard to get people to understand that sometimes the things that are being called terrorism aren't actually terrorism. Sometimes the groups that are being referred to as terrorists aren't exactly terrorists. And most importantly, none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. I think a very important point to harp on here for a second is the fact that a lot of organizations that people call terrorist organizations are actually more like government organizations. Like, let's take Hamas, for example, right? Like, Palestine technically is its own entity, and technically it has its own government. What has the Palestinian government achieved for its country or its people over the last many decades? Yeah, that was the answer. You just heard it. So there's also a paramilitary group or a militia called Hamas that frequently, you know, does attacks on Israel. These could be attacks on the IDF. This could be attacks on civilians. And they've essentially existed as the only quasi-governmental organization advocating for the Palestinian people. In this sense, they are more like the Palestinian government than the quote-unquote official Palestinian government. Now, is Hamas good? No. They're violent. They kill civilians. They do bad stuff. But guess who else does that? In much larger proportion and in a much more disturbingly organized and fascistic way. The Israeli government. Equating Hamas with all the Palestinian people is like equating the Israeli government with all the Israeli people. It's fucking absurd. There's tons of Israelis who hate the Israeli government and don't agree with what's going on. It's just as absurd as equating the American government with all of the American people. You listening, chances are you're an American. Do you feel like the American government represents your interests or really does anything for you in order to improve your material conditions or make your life better? Fucking no. Fucking of course not. But still, when we have discussions about politics and policies and interactions between people and conflicts, we understand that there are government organizations and there are people and that they're two distinctly different types of things. One of the worst things about talking about Middle Eastern politics that directly comes from the American propaganda machine is the way in which they've managed to wrap all of those things together. They really have made it so that people can't untangle government or quasi-governmental organizations from the people who literally just want to live their lives and ultimately don't give a shit about any of this, except for the fact that it's directly leading to them living in poverty and or dying horribly. This gets even more confusing when you get to Lebanon. Lebanon has a really, really odd governmental structure. And once again, a lot of this has been the result of imperialism and colonialism. The Lebanese government has been a mess for definitely my entire lifetime, but one of the big original conflicts was that it was not representative of its people. 
it was kind of similar to what happened in Iran, where there was sort of an overly pro-Western puppet government that led to an internal civil war, which was then exacerbated by external attacks from Israel. And it led to a government that is not only chaotic, but largely useless. This also led to the rise of the group called Hezbollah, which in the region where my family's from, which is the extreme south, where basically everyone is very poor and very Muslim, that's closer to your local government or even your state government than the actual government of Lebanon. Now, once again, do we like this group? No. I mean, they're like a violent paramilitary group, but when Israel comes knocking, they're the only people that fight back and they've actually defeated the IDF multiple times. I think my official line in Hezbollah has always been just don't fuck with them, right? Like don't fuck with them. Does that mean I'm a fan? No, I'm as much a fan of them as I am a fan of the American government. And I fucking hate the American government. The reality in this situation is that Israel has been brutally oppressive to the Lebanese. They've attacked us multiple times. They've tried to annex parts of the country. They attack us during quote unquote peacetime, which is actually when I was in the country and was like hugely eye-opening in terms of like how Israel operates. And they've basically just got the whole region cowed either through bullshit treaties or continued unceasing aggression. Even now, Israel is starting to mount like an official attack on Lebanon, and it's largely going ignored by the Western media. They don't want people to see just how brutal Israel is. They are a war-making, violent, fascist, racist, apartheid state. Like for me, being there in Lebanon during quote-unquote peacetime was so crazy, because when you were down in the south, where we were, which is also like the part of the country that Israel has wanted to annex the most, there were still shells. Like there were still constant shelling and explosions going on every night. Your power would cut out. You would go places and see people who were missing limbs or their homes had been destroyed. Even in the capital city of Beirut, which is like this beautiful, beautiful city. It's like the crown jewel of the whole country. I mean, there are huge sections of it that at that time were still just like completely bombed out. Like you'd be in one area and it's like super beautiful, modern metropolis and you'd turn a corner and it'd just be like pure destruction. Like, how is that a country during peacetime? The thing about Lebanon too is that like, it's never really been fully allowed to like recover and heal from the devastation that's been wreaked on it from America and from Israel and from the shadows of colonialism. And it's like, Truly, truly tragic. So like, yeah, you cannot equate people to their governments. And I think when we talk about Israel and Palestine, it's very, very frustrating because people equate the people to their governments. And it's not representative of either side. What we need to do is look at the facts in the case. The facts in the case is that Israel is an apartheid fascist state that tortures, kills, and treats Palestinians as far, far, far less than human. There is no justification for this. And if the result of that is that there is some violence coming from those people who have been brutally oppressed, then that's just the consequences of your actions, dog. Like, there's nothing else to say about it. 
No sensible person wants to see civilians die. No one wants to see violence and bloodshed. And right now, that is the huge outcry from the entire world is to broker a ceasefire and try and do something about this. A cry that Israel has roundly rejected. And that rejection has been, of course, backed up by the U.S. because fucking, of course. The net result of this in the West, or specifically in America, is that you have a lot of people who don't care for multiple reasons. They've had a lot of propaganda shoved at them, so some people just think that Israel's justified in everything that it does. Other people have had different kinds of propaganda shoved at them, the main point being that it's too complicated, so they just never want to talk about or directly interact with what is going on and what has been happening to the Palestinians for years and years and years. The incredibly frustrating rallying cry of the centrist is always, it's too complicated, I don't know what to say about it, but I don't know, I feel like I just laid it out in a way that's like, not that complicated. And once again, 9-11 really didn't help. Conditioning Americans to believe that the correct response to a terrorist attack that was a direct response to America's own fucked up political meddling in the Middle East is to then go and start an endless war really just did something terrible to the American psyche and maybe just like completely fucked American politics forever, at least when it comes to like foreign affairs. The most frustrating thing about all this is that there's no reason why people can't understand what's gone wrong in this scenario. There's no inherent reason why, let's just say Americans or Westerners, can't have empathy for people who are being oppressed. There's absolutely no reason. And no, you can't say, oh, well, the American government did it, so people don't want to acknowledge it. No, like, people acknowledge that the American government is fucked up and horrible, and that they've done genocide, and they've done all the worst kinds of racism. That doesn't mean that we can't interact with this scenario now in good faith and talk about how to try and rectify it now. Intersectional politics doesn't mean just throwing your hands up because everything is too much. That's like the opposite of what it means. And what drives me nuts, personally, is that when you look at video games, when you look at sci-fi, when you look at all this nerd media shit, you see all of these examples of narratives and scenarios that are trying to show you that it's important to try to understand where people are coming from in a conflict. It's important to keep in mind that maybe the people in power are abusing that power or maybe they're like lying to you about what's happening. Not that there's like some grand conspiracy, but just that they don't want to present it in a certain light, even though you can go find this like actually true factual information for yourself. I mean, once again, as a middle schooler or a teenager, this stuff was really obvious to me and I took it in a very bizarre direction, as I mentioned earlier. Like, I'd be playing games like Beyond Good and Evil and be like, oh, is the way they treat the pig an allegory for racism? Or I'd play Sukadin 3 and be like, are the lizard people Palestinians? Which is, once I have to say, I, that's not good. I don't like that. But you know what I mean in a narrative sense. Ugh, God, flashbacks to Star Wars, sand people. God, it's been a very, very long life. Anyway, the point is that I was thinking critically about this stuff as like an incredibly stupid teenager. So how are fully grown adults able to just completely fucking miss all of this shit? Not only is there no reason for people to not have that empathy, they've been given all of the tools and stories and fables to construct their own worldview 
and political view that's based around empathy that would help them process these events and interact with these scenarios in a more empathetic, humane, and intelligent way. And yet they don't. So my question is why? Why is that happening? And I have a few theories. So theory number one, some of this shit is just really fucking bad, right? Let's look at Detroit become human. Detroit is a quote-unquote game by the quote-unquote auteur David Cage. David Cage is by all accounts a pretty shitty person um, in many different ways, but he's also a bad creator. He's a bad writer. He's a bad director. His games are not fun to play or interesting. But what's relevant to this discussion is that Detroit is maybe his biggest swing and a miss because he tried to kind of tackle racism and make some commentary on it. In Detroit, the allegory here is that robots are a sort of segregated lower class. People are bigoted against them. They treat them poorly. And the game constructs a narrative about how, wait, robots can do all the things that humans do and they can have feelings and it's bad that people treat them differently. The writing in this game is awful. The handling of these issues is just so hacky and stupid that it once again makes gamers a little bit reticent to engage with stuff like this that actually has sort of a message to it, or it also dissuades them from kind of reading these messages into the games they play. I can say from the experience of doing this show, I have found that a lot of gamers are more or less allergic to like literary style analysis of video games. When you try and do a read on it that has some sort of deeper meaning or addresses some of the themes in the game, people get so fucking mad that they will send you hate mail. And yes, I'm being literal and talking from experience here. Stuff like Detroit just doesn't help because it conditions people to think stuff like this that maybe has some deeper socio-political message hidden within it is not only dumb, but it's not worth their time. The extraction of these ideas or themes is not something that's good. It's best left to ninnies and YouTubers. Obviously, I strenuously disagree with this, but this is more or less the mainstream take on the kind of media analysis that I regularly do on this show, and it sucks. So when there's a high-profile game that kind of tries to engage with that side of gaming or markets itself as being like specifically about something that would appeal to people who do that, it sucks when it's this fucking terrible. It's also just on face a bad idea to have a game studio that's famously made up of like white men who love to be sexist and racist and awful make a game that tries to like comment on racism and is specifically set in America. It's just like, come on, man, that's not good. This directly leads into another theory I have about why gamers are so allergic to this stuff. And that's that a lot of times they'll willfully reject it in order to more thoroughly enjoy something. The best example I can think of of this is Near Automata. Now, I thought of this because I replayed Near Automata last winter. And Near Automata is a game that I really love. And I had a lot of fun doing my original Near episode. And so I thought, hey, maybe I'll do another Near episode after I replay this one. But replaying it, I was just struck by 
how little people actually interact with like the themes and the messaging in this game. Because what Nier Automata really boils down to is one of the best modern takes on that kind of classic humanist sci-fi tale. You know, it has a ton of sci-fi tropes, and in this game, a lot of anime tropes as well. It's very formulaic in some senses, but it ultimately points towards a very humanist message that has something to actually say about the human condition and being human. And yet it feels like people just don't want to interact with that messaging or talk about what the game is about. Now, I think it's distinct in this game and not the game that came before, the original Nier, because they really focus a lot more on those themes and that messaging. You could argue that the original Nier is also sort of a humanist sci-fi fantasy sort of tale, but ultimately it's much more about the interpersonal relationships of the characters. It's much more about the characters struggling in this very brutal and unforgiving world more than some larger message about humanity. There is a big twist in that game that reframes the entire game and kind of calls in the question to everything you've done that relates to monsters, quote unquote, actually being humans. And I think that's where that element is in the original game. But in Nier Automata, the entire game is about that specific point. And I think that in this game, they go to great lengths to show you that. Now, the big thing in this game is basically there are these robots that these other slightly more sophisticated robots are sent to Earth to murder. And early on in the game, they start signposting that, hey, maybe the robots aren't actually just mindless automatons. Like, look, they can have their own society. They have feelings. They have personalities and interests and blah, blah, blah. And halfway through the game, they start really laying it on thick with like robots crying for their mothers and all these other like devastating war scenes involving funny little anime robots, which once again, like speaking of cognitive dissonance, holy shit, that's a big one right there. But, you know, by the end of the game, it's really become all about this humanist message of you can't assume that someone who is told to you to be your enemy is actually this inhuman monster. You can't make these assumptions because there are larger forces at play that don't have your interests in mind feeding you this information. In truth, all living things hold value and deserve life and respect. The reality of this game, though, is that nobody talks about that. They talk about literally anything else from this game. And maybe some of this is the game's fault because the narrative is very clunky and overcomplicated. Like, there's so much extra anime bullshit pumped into this game that I almost can't fault someone for missing the point of the narrative or missing all the messaging. And I think that here the abstraction does take away from that core humanist message. But there's also a lot of, like, fault placed on the audience here in my eyes. This game has been embraced by some of the most like shitty, gross, toxic gamers known to man who are just looking for more quote unquote sad anime stuff to consume. And so they're willing to just kind of overlook any sort of message this game has and go back to drawing hentai of 2B. Personally, it's just really 
disappointing and sad to show how little impact the messaging in this game had. This game has a really beautiful, moving narrative. And once again, I feel like it could move the needle for someone or maybe show them something that they need to see. And yet largely, it seems like that's not the case. Like it's impossible to have a conversation about this game without some weird tangential bullshit coming up. Like hentai of 2B or how horny Yoko Taro is or like whatever. And as disappointing as it is, it's also not just localized to this particular work of art. I think if we zoom out and look at the entire history of works of art that use this particular trope, that what does it mean to be a human trope, a lot of them are made by frustrating, problematic, or just straight up shitty creators. And that ultimately does dilute the impact of some of the work. From the world of literature, there are a couple of very great illustrations of this. The biggest one being probably Ender's Game. So Ender's Game is a book that a lot of people listening probably read when they were in middle school or high school. It's now viewed as a sci-fi classic. And once again, it hinges on a major twist that leads into a sort of humanist anti-war message. So what's the issue? It's made by a hardcore piece of shit American conservative. I don't even know what to say about Ender's Game because the reality of that is still head spinning to me to this day. But I guess it also points towards a fundamental truth, which is number one, maybe art isn't exactly the vessel for social change that we thought it was. And also some of this stuff might not be saying what you think it's saying. I think another great illustration of that exact point is Starship Troopers. Now, Starship Troopers is probably most well known as a film that is openly a satire of fascism and nationalism. But as heavily debated as the film was for how true that is or effective as it is as a piece of satire, the book was even more heavily debated. And to this day, it seems like nobody ever got a concrete answer out of the author Robert Heinlein about like what the book actually means or what its goals are. I remember reading it when I was in high school and thinking that it was kind of a fucked up depiction of normal people sent to war through forced conscription and just how miserable it was. But I guess some people read it as this kind of like fascist pro-military thing. And so, I mean, that's an example of a work that's been sort of transmuted or transmogrified into this kind of anti-fascist work, but maybe wasn't intended that way. And really, nobody knows. I guess what I'm trying to say is even something that has the potential to have a positive impact or spread a positive message can actually be a much more weird and thorny type of conversation that interacts with how it's perceived by the audience and the author's original intent. I think as an adult, as I've grown up, it is something that I have to contend with that I used to do these crazy pro-Arab leftist readings of works of fiction that like have nothing to do with that. A lot of this stuff came from Japan and like they don't give a shit about any of this stuff. I mean, Americans don't even give a shit and they're fucking paying for it. So I really don't know what I expected. 
the point is this. People can miss out on doing a sort of deeper, more meaningful sociopolitical read of a work of art for a couple different reasons that we've discussed, right? To recap, number one, it might just suck. And number two, it might be a little too weird, abstract, and morally gray to like actually extract some sort of meaning from. And throughout this episode, I've used the term reading in a very specific way because I want to point out that this is just the way that I interpreted it and someone else could have a completely different interpretation. With these works, I guess it can be frustrating or it can be sort of a disappointment if you had one read and you find out that most people have something totally different. But that's also kind of just what art is, right? Like we have to accept and just be okay with some amount of that when we're consuming media and especially then doing like criticism of it or analysis of it. So those are two issues, but there's another even bigger one. And that's when people just simply refuse to accept that a work has real political ramifications because it challenges their own worldview. And if you allowed someone to read it that way, it would make them uncomfortable. If I was doing this as a slideshow, a slide would now pop up that says, the willful ignorance of the gamer. And the subtitle, as upsetting and cursed as it would be to see, would be The Last of Us 2. Now, The Last of Us 2 is one of a number of games that I have solemnly vowed to never, ever cover again. And I am now backtracking on that because that was bullshit. Let me tell you what happened with The Last of Us 2. I played the game. I essentially did an anti-colonialist or anti-racist reading of the game's story and themes. And people got so mad at me that there were not only mass unsubbing, but they were also sending me hate mail about it. One of my biggest regrets is that I think I did a lot of my most cogent analysis on the Patreon and like forgot to ever make that public. It was in an episode that I did that was like further breaking down the themes of the game. And so for a long time, I just didn't want to deal with it. And I kind of just ran from any mention of this game or doing any further analysis. But now I feel like this is more relevant than ever. The thing that sucks about talking about The Last of Us 2 is that for a lot of people, it is one of their favorite games ever. It is a high watermark in their eyes for video game storytelling and game design and tech. And so when you have any criticism of it, a bunch of crazy gamers come after you. The other problem here is that there are other crazy gamers who immediately jumped onto this game and started criticizing it because they're bigots. So it feels like you're put in a weird position where if you love the game, you can't criticize it at all. Or if you have any criticisms of it, you're going to be called a bigot or a transphobe or whatever because there are these weird unhinged people who are actual bigots and are using this game as an excuse to air out their bigotry. This is not unlike talking about Israel because it's the exact same scenario. Israel does wrong, but if you criticize them, there's always going to be a subset of people who say, hey, that's anti-Semitic. You must hate Jewish people because you hate Israel. 
This in and of itself is such a fucked up statement because as I said earlier, it's just a fool's errand to equate any one person or group of people with a government that doesn't even represent them. And it's also just people telling on themselves for how reductive their worldview is. But the other problem is that there are real anti-Semitic people, a lot of them, who just hate Jews for no actual reason. They're just bigots and shitty people and, you know, fuck them. But when you get into these criticisms, there are people who are going to try and lump you into that. So I'm now going to try to cogently explain my reading of The Last of Us 2 while also attempting to not be lumped in as an anti-Semitic person or a transphobe because I'm neither and I reject the premise that just because I think this game has shitty Western-focused colonialist politics that, like, I have to love it. That is so fucked. So the first thing we have to talk about with The Last of Us 2, and I guess this is kind of the premise that you have to accept, is that it is influenced by real-world politics and things that have actually happened during wars and genocides in the real world. Now, to me, this was obvious just from playing the game, because especially as you get towards the end and you see like more bits and pieces of the world, you see things that actually happen in the real world that you generally don't see in video games. You see ethnic cleansings, you see slave traders, you see people tortured and sold and all this crazy stuff that to me, it reminded of things that happened in like Bosnia, Serbia, Palestine, Rwanda, like all of these different places in the world that experience political upheaval and violent conflict. These things are well known because they've been shown to us in news media, they've been shown to us in various films and documentary films about these subjects. So when I'm looking at them, I'm like, okay, the people who made this game have seen all the same stuff as I have, and now they're taking bits and pieces of it to flesh out the world that they've made. Now, after the game came out, there was an interview, at least one if not more, interviews with the director, Neil Druckmann, where he talks about how the game was influenced by real-world politics and how he was actually pulling from the real world when writing the game and designing its world. So this was confirmation of what I already had assumed just from playing the game. There's also a really interesting Vice article about it, and I'm sure the person who wrote this got hella hate mail about how the Israeli mindset towards Palestinians also plays into the way that the game presents its scenario. It's a really good read. I really appreciated that person writing that. It helped me feel slightly less crazy as a bunch of crazy people were telling me that I was a piece of shit and I should, you know, kill myself. Anyway, my fundamental problem with The Last of Us 2 is multi-layered. I think number one is that it's a deeply nihilistic game and not just in the sense that it like shows you a bunch of sad stuff or that it ends on a depressing note, but in the sense that it doesn't actually have anything to say about all the stuff that it shows you. It just shows you thing after thing after thing. And it gets to the point where for me, it was like emotional torture porn, if not like actual torture porn at points. It felt like I was just watching all this bad stuff happen, but there wasn't any point to it. The narrative didn't go anywhere. There were no revelations about the characters or the world that they lived in. There was no growth or change amongst anything like these societies represented or the characters in the game. It all felt like it was for nothing. 
which at a basic level isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, as someone who has a very, very strong nihilist streak, I can kind of fucking get with that. But then what I need is something else backing it up in the story. I need to align with the characters or get into their headspace or, you know, appreciate what they're going through or the things that are happening to them within the story. And I absolutely couldn't with this game for a couple of reasons. So first, to go back to the original premise, I couldn't ignore the real world stuff that was in this game. I couldn't ignore the use of actions and events from real world political struggles. And especially because of how gruesome they are and how explicitly they are presented within the game. Like, I can't just ignore that. So then I started to think about, well, what are these characters? Who are they? And what are they aligned with? And that's when the whole framing of the story and its world just completely fell apart for me. So here's how I see it. We start with Ellie. She's the first character we play as. We are the most familiar with her because we have seen her journey prior. We've played as her before. And she starts in kind of a weird version of small town America. All in all, as an American, it seems pretty familiar. Now, halfway through the game, we're introduced to Abby. Abby is the opposite in basically every way she could be. She's incredibly unfamiliar. The society she lives in is kind of a fascist military society. She seems to be a willing cog in that machine. Her whole story is like really, really stark and brutalist. Like we're meant to feel like we are a soldier in this kind of like endless war machine. It is in a lot of ways very like Starship Troopers, whether they intended it to be or not. Where things get weird is when Abby's quote-unquote character development starts to happen. And that's all done through a little kid who's from a third faction that exists within this world, which they call the Scars. Now, the Scars are where all of this gets completely fucked up. Now, for starters, the Scars isn't even what they're actually called. That's an in-world slur that all the characters use exclusively to refer to this group. They call them a slur, they refer to them as a cult, and all we find out about them is that they're weird. They're the other. This game does everything it can to otherize this group of people. Now, the one character that we actually get to know from the society, or I guess technically two, are this little kid and their sister who escape from that society and meet up with Abby. Very quickly, Abby kind of becomes a protector figure and starts helping them make their way through the world. Now, this is supposed to be character development. However, there's a few massive problems here. Number one, we don't learn anything substantial about this character or their society. There are a couple very brief, very surface level conversations about religion and theology and the problems that Abby has with that society. 
And within those conversations, we learn that this character actually left that society because they're trans. They were basically persecuted and cast out for being queer. This is basically the last bit that we find out about these people. I mean, we've been fighting them and we continue to fight and murder tons of them, but we don't actually learn anything else about them or their society. Later on, we see Abby's faction literally doing an ethnic cleansing of these people, but it's used as a backdrop for the game's big showstopper finale. Like, this is just a thing that happens, and it's like, yeah, whatever, I guess that happens, so, um, next. This massively threw me for a loop, because here's how I see what the game was saying, or how it was presenting its world. For starters, we're supposed to empathize with Abby and the society that she comes from, because they're humans. We get to go inside their barracks, see how they live. We see that she has a relationship with her friends. When they die, we're supposed to grieve with her over their death. Like, we really get inside Abby's head and we get into the society and we're supposed to empathize with them, even though, on the other hand, they are violent, war-making fascists. They do ethnic cleansings. They do everything they can to expand their power. It's made very clear, at least to me, that they aren't doing this out of self-preservation. They're doing this because they essentially believe in Manifest Destiny and they think that they should just conquer all of their enemies. That's violent fascism. That's violent military fascism. So we're supposed to align with them. And we also see that they sort of share what we would consider modern values, like it's okay to be gay, it's okay to fuck whoever you want, blah, 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 like there are people of multiple races, so okay, we're supposed to just align with them and empathize with them, even though, once again, they're violent fascists. However, when we look at the scars, we're not even supposed to see them as human. We don't learn anything about them. We don't see inside their society. We don't learn anything about who they are and what they believe. We're supposed to just take for granted that it's okay for them to fight and die, either at our hand or as we stand aside and do nothing, because they don't deserve it. They don't share our modern and or Western values, and therefore they're not deserving of empathy or consideration. All we need to know that at least one of them is bigoted and so the whole society should be wiped out. This is such a massive fucking problem when we talk about the Middle East, because a lot of these countries are predominantly Muslim. And so people say, oh, Muslims are bigots. They hate gay people. When this whole October 7th shit popped off and people were trying to defend Palestine or just say Palestine should be free, the amount of people saying you wouldn't last a minute in Gaza, they'd kill you because you're gay, was like, absolutely fucking insane. And that is more or less the position that this game takes on the scars. Like, we're just supposed to believe that there's this faction of people who live in this insane, brutal, violent, post-apocalyptic hell world, and they just, like, deserve to die because they don't share the exact same values that we, the player, do. Like, it's so toxic. It's such a shitty framing, and it's something that isn't just like bad in this abstract vacuum. It's bad because people actually think this way about Palestinians, about Muslims, about Arabs. 
My whole reaction to The Last of Us 2, I see now in hindsight, was completely visceral because my whole life, I've basically been told that Arabs are dogs, Muslims are dogs, we're not human, we deserve to die, we deserve to be caught in an endless war, and that we don't deserve to be considered humans. And then here's a shitty fucking video game that isn't even like fun to play telling me the exact same shit, or at the very least, it is rooted in the exact same framing and worldview that creates people who believe that. The Last of Us 2 is some toxic fucking bullshit because it purports to be a tale about empathy and about how people need to have empathy for both sides of a conflict, quote unquote. And yet it just excludes people who are different from the writer or the narrator or the like main character. Those people don't deserve it. To me, it made the whole game just ring hollow. It felt like performative, white, liberal bullshit. And I think that it makes you rethink a lot of other things in the game that are not inherently political. Like, why can't you spare someone in a firefight? Why is it that they always have to die? Why is violence the only choice? What is the actual message I'm supposed to take away from Ellie being this, like, revenge-obsessed psycho? I said this in one of those original episodes, and I stand by it. Framing this as a war story is possibly the worst thing they could have done, because I think everybody agrees on the basic platitudes of war. Violence bad. War is hell. Like, you're gonna have to dig deep to find someone who's unhinged enough to agree with those like very, very broad truisms. And so trying to like tell the story as a war tale really undercuts any actual message it could have had. To me, The Last of Us 2 was both torture porn and just massive spectacle for the sake of spectacle. It was completely hollow, completely false, and if it had any message to spread, it was overwhelmingly negative. If you are a person who's recently taken some time to re-examine some of your beliefs on this topic or has just recently learned what's going on in Palestine, maybe revisit some of your thoughts on this game and see if you've changed your mind at all. Because like, to me, it feels like a lot of people just willfully misunderstood this game because they didn't want their worldview challenged and they didn't want to have to give up on enjoying like the big marquee game of the year thing that The Last of Us 2 ended up being. The Last of Us 2 is an interesting work in the context of the question, who gets to be human? Because it doesn't really have an answer, but is a great illustration of the real world answer, which is basically whoever the mainstream, however you want to define that, decides is human. Whoever is acceptable, who fits into the white American mainstream conception of quote-unquote one of the good ones. This kind of conditional empathy that only views people as human in a purely transactional sense is one of the great cancers of our time. It is truly leading us towards being in the darkest fucking timeline. When I wrote the outline for this episode, I didn't write an ending because I don't know how to end this and I don't know what to say. I feel like my whole life I've been feeling like I'm crazy because so many people don't want to acknowledge these things or acknowledge 
how the American propaganda machine has contributed to Israel being able to get away with the genocide so long, or how different works of media actually dissuade people from doing deeper readings and like considering these critical things about the media we consume. I guess now that more and more people are opening their eyes to that situation and the way that all this works, I hope that maybe people are more receptive to this kind of stuff and are more willing to think deeper about these different works of media that we consume and more importantly, the like real life scenarios that influence them. But I don't know. I don't really have any hope. It's been a whole lifetime of people telling me to shut the fuck up or ignoring me when I talk about this stuff. It makes me not want to talk about it at all. And yet with this whole show that I've created and the framework around it and everything, I feel like I have to. I owe it to myself, I owe it to people like me, I owe it to the listeners to actually address this topic and speak about it. But all I can say is I hope you're listening now because for a long time, a lot of people really, really were not. <laughs> 